Well, it's my privilege to continue this service, but now through the reading of God's word and gaining understanding. If you're, na- if you're new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we are studying the book of James, uh, written by Jesus' brother. And uh, he, along with his other brother, Jude, wrote two of some of the final portions of scripture. And James has a unique view upon the early church. He wrote this very, very early on and was considered the leader of the early church. Most people often think of Peter as that leader. He was certainly the spokesman, the first to speak, and the one that was the greatest ambassador going out. But when it came to the organization of the church, the purity of the church from Jerusalem, it was James. And so we're going to study that, uh, his book today, uh, and continuing in that context, we're going to be in James chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to turn there. We'll be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and we'll be going to verse 26. Now, last week, we were in the first 13 verses of this text, and that was taught by uh, Tom last week, and we learned a little bit about uh, flying in his first illustration, where he talked about this moment that can happen for a pilot when they're in the, when a very dense fog or clouds and they cannot see anything, that it can often happen where they will choose to trust their own instincts at the cost of avoiding the instruments that will tell them the truth of what's going on. The instincts say you're flying level when in reality you might be flying directly at the ocean floor below, which is what happened uh, to John F. Kennedy Jr. uh, when he was flying a plane and it crashed into the ocean. And they call this effect where you ignore devices that tell you the truth, but you start trusting in your your instincts, which are flawed in that moment, and and because you're going by sight, they call it vestibular illusion. Now, I had to practice saying that term multiple times to avoid having to apologize for some other word I might accidentally say. But vestibular illusion is that case where it's like your instincts are telling you this is the truth, when in reality, it couldn't be further from the truth, and it could have devastating effect. Well, that can happen just even in our daily walking. Our instincts tell us we're fine, we're walking the right way, When in reality, the instruments, the word of God is telling you, you have no idea. You're actually walking yourself into trouble. It's going to get you into a place where you're going to regret because you're trusting in things you can see and not always what you see is accurate. And so in the text last week, the first 13 verses, it talked about how people were often caught up in the church and making poor decisions because they're basing it on what they saw. They see somebody well-dressed. They see somebody that has great influence in society. They see someone that that has some skills. And they start elevating them based on all the external things and undervaluing their heart and undervaluing the character of who they are. And and James brings this to light saying, this will cause you, if you're going to let your eyes and everything you see guide your life to a fault where you don't let the filter of God's word guide you, you're gonna end up being in a place that you're going to regret. And so favoritism is born out of such thing, and that's what he speaks to. So again, not trusting so much in what you see, but realizing there's a heart behind every person that is to be of greater value. 
Now, what's interesting is where we go next in James chapter 2 is he starts talking about, again, the need for evidences you can see to show that there's true faith. So he's almost flipping it. So confronting when you put too much value on what you see and now saying, well, but if there's nothing observable about your faith, there's something to be questioning then about the legitimacy of your faith. So let's go into James chapter two. We're gonna start by reading in verse 14 and I'm gonna go through verse 19 and stop there and then we'll pick up the rest 20 to 26 after that. So verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So let me restate the question that James is asking here. Can faith that has no evidence of deeds be a saving faith? And that's a really important question to ask, right? Because we, by faith, want to be saved. Saved from God's judgment and brought into God's provision for life. So this is an important question to ask. Can faith without evidence of action, works, or deeds, be a saving faith? And I believe this question was being asked by James because there was something going on in that early church that was beginning to put uh, a false or an improper spin on a very true statement of theology. And it's called justification by faith alone. If you've never heard that before, then you probably haven't gone to Bible college or some kind of theological training because that's a, that's a common statement within a theological grid and systematic theology to say, we believe in the justification by faith alone, which is born out of the text in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says that if it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So that's the Apostle Paul speaking in the book of Ephesians. And what he's saying there is that, listen, salvation is by grace. It's a work that was done by someone else other than you. In this case, Jesus. So salvation is by grace, a work done by Jesus for you. And then by faith, we accept his work being done for us. And as a result of that, we are justified before God as being righteous, pure, and holy. Not by our works, but by the work of Christ alone. So that's a very important theology because it speaks to the fact that you and I, no matter what we could possibly ever do, could ever earn 
or work for our salvation. That is something that is a work of grace by God and God alone through his son Jesus. And by faith we accept that. Okay, so it's not our works. That's the statement. And let me tell you that it's an important statement to hold on to because otherwise you and I would be, do it, be that mouse trying to work on the wheel and, and work harder and spin and run faster to try to prove or earn our worthiness of salvation. But we're taught, no, Jesus has done the work. So then why is James bringing in this question that is it possible that for our faith to be salvific or able to save us without any evidence that that faith is, is truly real for you? Can, can somebody look upon your life, see no evidence of faith, but yet you claim faith and that faith be able to save you? Very important question. So apparently something was going on in the early church that James is addressing here where that justification by faith alone was being taught incorrectly. And I would believe that what you'll see that many commentarians will say that he is suggesting that people are beginning to teach that if you know salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus, that that is sufficient for your salvation. That that's enough to just believe that. So in other words, you have good theology and your good theology then saves you. And James is saying, that's not really what it's saying there. There's more to that. You can't just believe something accurately and all of a sudden that accuracy saves you. Something else must be added. And so he says, no, there must be some kind of evidence or a working out of that faith to show that it is true and real faith. All right, so that's what's going on here is that there's this teaching that perhaps just knowing the accuracy that Jesus did all the work and it's a grace, we believe that and we're good. We're good. The problem is, is that James is saying that would mean the church could just be a bunch of people who believe accurately, but nothing ever flows out of them. So then he gives this analogy to make his point, where he says, okay, verse 15, so suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but then does nothing for their physical needs, then what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is a dead faith. Okay, so let me just say this statement. Words of faith then, offered to someone in need without addressing the need, lacks the power of life, and therefore your words are dead words. That's what James is saying. It's like, okay, you could have all the right theology. You could be completely accurate in what you believe, and you can even say those things very articulately. But if you do not have anything that flows out of that faith that says that faith is real, then anything you would ever say to a person according to that faith is just simply dead words. 
I mean, think about that statement. I mean, somebody is lacking the, the nice clothes that they need or the warm clothes they might need, and they're lacking daily food, and some religious person comes up to them and says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, as if that accomplishes anything. I mean, it sounds like a really, really, really smart pastor. Go in peace, all of you. And my benediction today, go in peace. Be warm and well-fed. Have a great week. If I said that to you, and you and you sense from me that there is no living out of my faith, you're gonna receive me as a fraud. And on top of that, anything I just said has no life to you. Because would you even receive it as something that's like, okay, you just said some very important words to me, but there's no evidence that you even believe it yourself. So why should I be interested to hear anything you would have to say if you're not really the authentic person you claim to be? So the person in need is just simply gonna receive those words as meaningless, dead. In fact, a person in need is not going to give a flip what you say if what you say is not reflected by how you live. It's just true. And those are, that's my terminology. I, you know, it's like, they're not gonna give a flip. They're just not gonna, they're not gonna care at all what you have to say if they cannot sense there is anything about you that suggests you believe what you just said. So therefore, your words are dead to them. You haven't earned the right to be heard at all because you're just speaking and you become a talking voice. A transformational journey for a human being with their considering faith, they need to be able to hear explanation and words, yes, but they need to be able to see it lived out and applied in some way to see that these words carry life. If there's no life example, then there isn't anything to say that if I follow that pattern, that there will be life for me. So for example, following this situation, if we were to live it out, James says, there's a person who's lacking clothing and lacking food. A secularist, a non-believer, a complete pagan who has no faith grid whatsoever could do the very things that this person needs. Provide clothes, provide food. Happens all the time. In the world, even in, around here, people do that. They provide that. That's why there's boxes that we can drop a bunch of our clothes that we don't want anymore off is because it's like, we'll provide clothing for those who might need it since I'm done with it. There's ways of providing food for people locally. We have food pantries everywhere around us. Secularists, pagans, non-believers give to those things all the time. It's not just Christians. But the difference is when a secularist gives clothing or food, that's the end of their ability to give. They just meet that day's needs. But have they changed anything about the trajectory of their life? No. Same too, a religious person who sees somebody that needs clothes, sees somebody that needs food, and says, you know what? I know that they probably got there because they've made a lot of mistakes with the way they've handled their finances. So I'm gonna tell them how they made all their mistakes to get themselves in that situation. So they offer all these words of wisdom that can get them out of the situation. But meanwhile, they're in that situation and you've done nothing to help them. 
what have we offered them? A correction that they're just saying, you know what? That's just a moralistic punk. They've got all the morals, but they're a punk. They don't care about me at all. So you have a secularist who provides the food and compassion, but no message to change the life, no hope. Get to live for another miserable day, but that's all that they offer is like, oh, you can live now. The religious person, they tell you how to think, but they certainly don't help you know how to live because they have no life change to offer, which is why I think James is saying, listen, the person who offers food and clothing to the person in need now has the ear of the person who had that need. It's earning the right to be heard. And it also communicates that if you're going to speak in that moment, even if they kind of act like they're uninterested, trust me, they're listening. Because if somebody's showing compassion and they have words to come with that compassion, it's starting to stay in their head. And they have to work it out. Now, does Jesus give this same example? Because, again, James doesn't spend all, hardly any time talking about Jesus in, this, in, the, in the text that we're getting over the next few weeks. But we're always going back to say, is James being consistent with Jesus? And yes, he is. When Jesus was asked in Luke 10, so what must I do to be saved? Jesus responded to the man. Well, what are the first two commandments? What are the great commandments? Well, to love God with all your being, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then that man responds, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus calmly responds, says, well, let me tell you a story. There was a young Jewish man that was on his way up the road to offer, you know, going to Jerusalem. So it, it suggests that he was going there to offer something religious. So a good, faithful Hebrew. But as he was on the road, likely carrying gifts, that are of value, he gets robbed and beaten and left for dead. On that same road, going to Jerusalem, probably to lead those religious festivities, was a Levite. And the Levite came on, it's like, oh, I wanna be able to do my leadership, so I don't wanna become unclean and help somebody that's in need, because that, who knows what their story is, so I'm just gonna let them go, keeps walking. A priest comes by, probably rationalizes the same thing. Maybe has a little bit more empathy and says, oh, go in peace. Hopefully you stay warm tonight while you lie on this road naked. And keeps walking. Meanwhile, a foreigner, a despised foreigner, a Samaritan comes by. Shows compassion. Bends over takes care of some immediate needs, then takes him into the local village, provides for those needs even beyond his staying. Jesus looks at the man who asked about the neighbor comment and says, this is your neighbor. When you see somebody who has need, you help. So somebody who's going to be saved, again, that was the leading question. How can one be saved? Love the Lord your God with all your being and love others as yourself. It's a combination of like, when you start loving God for who he really is, then what he loves is what you love. And guess what he loves? People. He loves people. And so if we are truly being transformed by the love of God, then you'll start seeing the outward expression of that, that faith by the way we love other people. 
And so Jesus is speaking very, very much what James is referring to is that, listen, a faith that has no actions, no evidence to that faith is a dead faith. Even if you have accurate theology and can say with your mouth accurate things, a true faith is gonna be evidenced by a faith that has deeds or a working out. Now here's where I need to speak something. Martin Luther, who was a very significant figure in church history, advocated for having the book of James removed from Scripture because of the very text we're reading today. Why is that so? Because Luther had been fighting what the church was struggling with in that day, which had made faith about works, where they, the church began to even prescribe works. This is what you do to make yourself right with God. And people began to believe that salvation is not by grace through faith, but salvation was by works. And Martin Luther was, was concerned for the health of the church, that they were living out this prescribed works theology of earning a righthood or a righteousness with God by what we do. And he knew that there is no way we would ever find enough good works to be declared righteous in God. It requires the work of Jesus to become righteous in God's eyes. Martin Luther had it right. But in the process of trying to fight a flawed perspective of that statement, he ends up going and swinging the pendulum the other way. Of that proper theology isn't sufficient either. Faith, when it's truly real, does evidence itself in works. Because the person is being transformed by that transformative work of God because of that faith. And therefore you see the evidence of it by works. And so he really struggled with what James was saying here. It's like, this is gonna create a problem because this is where my brethren in the church are erring right now is it's all about works. So this is where we have to help Martin Luther a, a bit. It's the balance of the two. Faith is born in us by the gift of God. That verse I said in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, where salvation is by grace through faith and this not of ourselves is a statement that's implying and I believe it's more than implying, I think it's teaching it that the faith that we even have in the gracious work of Jesus is a gift from God itself. That if left to ourselves, we would not have faith. But God gives us the gift to be able to have faith in the work of Jesus. So there is no, nothing we can boast about in regards to our salvation if we're saved. There is nothing we can boast about. But at the same time, to say that we understand all that accurately and we can teach it accurately and say that's sufficient. We have grossly misunderstood what is happening here. Because it says in scripture that when we truly, by faith, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, he begins to do a transformative work in us that forever changes our character and our being. So if there is no evidence of faith in you by the way you live, then there is no true faith. You just have accurate understanding of something. 
And that's what James is concerned about in the church is that people were trying to correct their theology and get it right, but they were not having an encounter with Jesus that would change their lives. How do I know that this is where he's going? Well, the text is very clear on that, and it gets even clearer with what he says next in verses 18 and 19. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Well, that's an argument of, of polarization. One's about faith, one's about deeds. They're both wrong. Verse 19, look, this is crazy what he says next. You believe that there is one God, right? Good theology, there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, is anybody here in the room willing to make a case that demons are saved and are moral and are good? No, none of us would because we know they're servants of Satan. But yet, here's what's interesting. Their theology is incredibly perfect. The demons' theology, they understand very specifically who God is. They understand very clearly who Jesus is in relation to God. They understand clearly what Jesus' death and burial and resurrection did. They've got it all down packed and they can even explain it. But yet they're not angels. They're demons. Why? Because even though they have accurate theology... 100% accurate theology. Their faith and their lordship was given to another. It was given to Satan himself. And you see the fruit of that. The evidence of what they've chosen as Lord is evidenced by the fact that they lead out in fear. They defy God rather than submit to God. And the things that we know anything about Satan are the fruits that we see through the demons. So in this case, a true faith does not merely believe accurately. It is evidenced in a transformed life. True faith does not merely believe accurately. Please hear me in this. Because this church, we've been teaching theology very specifically for years prior to my time. And so we have a lot of people that are very good and accurate in their understanding of who God is. But that does not mean that they have a faith that has saved them. Because faith understands, if you go back to Romans 10 where it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In that statement, in the confession, that Jesus is Lord, Lord of your life, meaning he is the leader, the one you submit to in, the, in all things that you do with your life. Therein, is the dividing line. Do you simply have accurate understanding of who God is, but no faith? Or do you have accurate understanding of who God is, and you then entrust yourself to that understanding that he is Lord and he is your Lord? That's the separation between angels and demons. They all had accurate understanding of God, but one chose to make God, keep God as Lord, and the other said, no, I'm gonna follow Satan as Lord. Continuing on, verse 20, we haven't read this yet, but he says, you foolish person, do you need more evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And that's the verse that wrecks Martin Luther, by the way. So you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So in these two examples, James is making his point. With Abraham, he had already shown that there was faith. He had left his former country because God told him to. He trusted God, went to a new country, and then was told that he was going to become the father of many nations. And that was strange because he was old and he had no children. He trusted in that. He ends up having children. Now, there was a little bit of a blip in the schedule there for Abraham, but he got things right eventually, and God provided Isaac. And then Isaac was told, Abraham was told, Isaac is going to be the one through whom I'll provide these nations and the promised nation Israel. But now he didn't use that term yet, but Isaac through whom, it was through whom it will be. So at this point, Abraham has, has no reason to ever misbelieve God. God has always proven that everything he said was going to be true. And then there comes this moment when God tests I, Abraham, would you be willing to give up your one and only son for me? Through a whole series of things, we know that Abraham was willing to even sacrifice his son for the sake of God and obedience. And God spared Isaac, and we know that that was then credited as righteousness between Abraham and God. Here's how Hebrews 11 speaks to it. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham's faith in God had grown so much that even when this did not make sense in his eyes, he was figured with the only little bit of reasonability he could come up with, God must, gonna be, must be planning to raise him from the dead because God is always faithful to what he says. So he trusted his instruments. You get it? He trusted his instruments, not his instincts. He knew that God had already written out so faithfully his words. And so Abraham had to trust in the words of God, even though his instincts say this is not right. Rahab, same similar situation, except for completely outside the context of knowledge historically. But Rahab lived in Jericho, the first city that Israel was gonna come up against after having left Egypt and being in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, Rahab, we know that she told the spies that came in to scout the city. She told them, we have all heard about your God. We have heard how he uh, caused harm to the Egyptians and caused them to want to release you into freedom. We heard how he rescued you across the sea. 
We know your God is God. And we know that he is for you. She kept saying we. Her entire city knew this. But only one came to a place of faith. They all had an accurate understanding of who God was. He was the God of the Hebrews, the God of, of power, the God against the most powerful nation on the earth, the God who could control the waves of the sea. They knew who God was. They had heard his stories. But instead of finding faith in that God and relenting to God, they chose to figure out a way to fight him and defy him. But Rahab instead chose faith. What'd she do? She pled for mercy from that God and pled for mercy from Israel. And God saw her faith because she had submitted to him rather than to her city and their desire to fight him. These are examples of how faith is evidenced by action. I wanna bring it just a little closer to our age. In 1859, there was a man named Charles Blondin, a tightrope walker, that had stretched a cable from the United States side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side, 1,100 feet in length, 160 feet above the falls. And over the summer of 1859, he crossed that tightrope across the falls over 300 times. On July 15th of that summer, after having started doing this in the later parts of June, he is now drawing massive crowds to come and see this wonder, this man that's walking across that tightrope with no security around him. On this day, they watched him walk across in a sack where he couldn't use his arms. On this day, they also saw him walk, go across riding a bicycle. They also saw him go across grilling up an omelet on a little stove he had strapped to his chest. And he concluded with walking across on stilts across that rope. The crowds were so enamored by him and they were cheering his name. And then he pulls out a wheelbarrow and he walks across backwards with the wheelbarrow to the Canadian side and then forwards back towards the American side. The crowd's going nuts and they're yelling his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. And then he says, how many of you believe that I could go across with somebody in that wheelbarrow. And the whole crowd's erupting, we believe, we believe. And he says, okay, who will get in it? Not a single person offered. They believed he could do it. And I also believe that they fully believed he could do it. They knew he could, 100%. If you could go across in stilts, you could go across with the wheelbarrow with somebody in it. It wasn't until a month later that somebody got in and it was his manager, the one that promoted him because it had to be proven that it's true. So he entrusted himself and he went across in that wheelbarrow back and forth. You see, what's evidence in that story, just like Abraham, just like Rahab, is you can believe. You can even believe fully and you can believe accurately but faith doesn't happen until you entrust yourself to that which you believe so my question to you is this and there are three of them 
because this is most essential in this whole talk about whether or not your faith is a faith that saves you. So I begin with this. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Because you must believe accurately. You need to understand that who Jesus is. Do you believe that he is Lord? And then do you believe enough to entrust yourself to his lordship? Because if you do, you will see your life beginning to be transformed. This isn't talking about a try harder type of faith. No, this is relenting your will to the one who will change your life. And then the evidence of that will begin to birth on its own without a try harder, run faster mentality. Thirdly, the question I ask of you, can others see the evidence of God's work in you? If not, is it because you fear man versus fearing God? If not, if people can't see the evidence in you, is it because you still struggle with doubt as to whether or not he's real? And you have to be honest with yourself. If you're willing to look in the mirror and let the mirror tell you, as what James talked about a couple of verses before this, if you look in the mirror and there's no evidence of faith, you have to really ask yourself, and, and I beg you to ask, do you truly have faith? Do you truly have faith? I have good news for you. If there's no evidence of that faith in your life, we can go to the one who has done the work for you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Ask for his help. He even says to the doubter, Come to me, I'll help you believe. Submit to his lordship, let him work in you because when we submit to his lordship, he gives us the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to be able to live these things out. Our faith, for those of us who are walking with Jesus, we understand our faith is in what he has done, not what we have done. And that's the best way I can lead, end this message. He's done the work. And we get the privilege of letting that work happen in us and that people will begin to see the evidence of his work through us. Let's pray. Jesus, the last thing I, the last thing I wanna do is misguide people to think it's about works. When in reality, it's about your lordship. It's about your work and what you've done for us. So Lord, if somebody was courageous enough to ask these questions of themselves this morning, would you reveal the truth to their heart so that they can do business with you? I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please? Yeah.
And that really is the truth. To believe accurately is to understand that mankind left to itself cannot possibly do anything to reconcile themselves back to God. It's true then that God, because he first loved us, did the work necessary through Jesus to reconcile us back to him. That work is a grace. That is the grace upon grace that we've received, and that's truth. And then by faith we receive it, and then trust in his lordship, and then you begin to see the manifestations of that faith. What James is doing is simply saying, listen, don't, don't 
deceive yourself. Don't think that you're just fine when you just have accurate theology, but you have no true faith where you trust in Jesus every day and let his work be done in you so that there is a transformation. And then our words become powerful and life-giving to those we serve. If you'd like to talk to someone uh, after the service here, we'll have people in the encounter room that's to my left, your right, that would be glad to talk with you and pray with you. But I say this as a final gift, is that salvation's by grace through faith alone, not by works, so that no man can boast, because that faith is a gift. It's the gift of God. Amen. You are dismissed.